Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. The Killer Women Vodcast is pleased to be a part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. To learn more about Danielle and her books, visit her at www.daniellegirard.com and to access all of our vodcasts, go to youtube.com forward slash authors on the air. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to the Killer Women podcast. I am your host, Danielle Girard, and my guest today is author Wanda M. Morris. Wanda is the acclaimed author of All Her Little Secrets, which has been praised by Karen Slaughter as brilliantly nuanced and reviewed by the Boston Globe, LA Times, New York Times, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Seattle Times, and South Florida Sun Sentinel, Sentinel, among others. Woo! Wanda, you got some great attention for that. I love it. It was named as one of the best books of 2021 by Hudson Booksellers and selected as the number one top pick for library reads by librarians across the country. It was serialized in Entertainment Weekly and a Marie Claire book club pick. Wanda is a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and Crime Writers of Color. A corporate attorney, attorney, Wanda has worked in the legal departments of some of America's top Fortune 100 companies. She is an accomplished presenter and leader. As a former president of the Georgia chapter of the Association of Corporate Counsel, she established a signature female empowerment program known as the Women's Initiative. She is married, the mother of three, and lives in Atlanta, Georgia. She is a busy woman. Welcome, <laughs> Wanda. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle, for having me. Oh my God, it's so exciting. And look, you, I don't know how you're doing this all, lady. You, uh, you got must be drinking, not sleeping, drinking a lot of caffeine. Anyway, it's so impressive, your background. And um, her new book, Anywhere You Run, um, is available. Oh gosh, tell me the date. October 25th. October 25th. And this was fabulous. I, I haven't read all her secrets. I actually have it on my shelf. And I'm really looking forward now to like, now that I know uh, I'm a Wanda Morris lover, I'm going to get back to that one. And that, I the attention that that book has gotten is incredible. And I know this one is going to be just as popular. So before we delve into all the questions I have about your process and these incredible characters, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Anywhere You Run? Sure. I'd like to describe Anywhere You Run as a coming of age story of two young um, Black sisters. Uh, Violet Richards um, is brutally attacked um, and she kills her attacker. Uh, but she knows that she won't get justice in Jim Crow, um, Mississippi in 1964. So she takes off running and through a series of kind of twists and turns, she winds up in a small rural town called Chillicothe, Georgia. Um, her older sister, Marigold, is also in a bit of trouble. Um, she is unmarried and pregnant, uh, which is a big no-no in the 1960s. So when the police show up at her door looking for Violet, she figures it's time for her to make a run as well. And she takes off for the North. Uh, but what the two sisters don't realize is that um, there is a man uh, with his own brand of dark secrets, and he has a very unusual motive for finding the women. And he starts and he is hot on their trail. So it's a cat and mouse sort of thriller. It is a cat. And okay. 
the the sort of the drama of the the women's fear and you know i think this has to do with a lot with sort of the time that this was set although i want to talk a lot of, also about sort of how relevant the story feels today which is unfortunate since we're you know 1964 was almost 60 years ago um so that's an unfortunate reality of our life in america but before we talk about that i also want to talk about how you know these two women these sisters i wanted to ask do you have a sister I do. I actually have two sisters. Oh. Um, so yeah, uh, I know what it's like to have that deep, um, unflinching love. And then to, to, you know, have kind of the moxie to say, get your act together, girl. Yes, <laughs> yes, right. And to be, and, and that birth order thing is important. Marigold is the, you know, there's a, there's a third sister who is the oldest sister and, right. you know, um, and they're the, the flower sisters, Rose, Marigold, Violet, which I love. And, um, and you know, Rose has a very big part in the story too. And they're the bond of those, uh, those three sisters and the order, you know, the way we interpret sort of how we fell into birth order. I'm the oldest in my family and I have a younger sister. And, you know, for all these years, I was the sort of one that's like, you gotta, come on, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. And um, so I think that is also so, so pertinent, so authentic, the way those two women interact. And, and I love that. So can you tell us, and I got ahead because I, I wanted to gush on the characters, the way that they're, they're so strong in their own ways, the way the self-doubt feels so authentic, right? We all have this sense of like, I'm messing this all up um, and my sister's doing it better. And yet, of course, they feel, they both feel, you know, that way about the other one. Um, can you tell us what the inspiration was for Anywhere You Run? Um, wow, gosh, you know what, I, um, I, I wanted to write a book, um, I, I had just finished up um, All Her Little Secrets, I just finished writing it and I turned it in um, to my editor, and I was trying to think of, you know, what would I write next, and we had just come through the throes of the 2020 election, and there was all this rancor about uh. You know, election fraud and the big lie. And I thought, oh, it would be really cool to explore that um, through kind of a mystery thriller. But I couldn't really figure out a contemporary angle for the mm -hmm. story. And, um, you know, again, all this noise about election fraud got me to thinking, you know, what if we take a look at where it kind of all started? Um, and the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, and I thought I would center the story in 1965, but as I was doing research, um, really kind of election and, um, and voting rights for Blacks really kind of started several years before that, and 1964 was a really um, pivotal year because, um, you know, all this work that Megger Evers had done in Mississippi to secure yeah. the And then um, it, three uh, young men had come to Mississippi. Uh, they were freedom riders and they were there to help black Mississippians get the right to vote. And I thought, oh, this might be the right place to start the story. So the book actually opens with kind of an imagining of the murders of those three young men. Yeah. Um, and 
So it's against this backdrop that I was able to explore all these issues around voting rights and you know women's rights mm-hmm. and women's financial independence and a woman's mm-hmm. right to govern her own body. And um, so I, I knew that I'd had this character rambling around in my head ever since I'd written all her little secrets and it was Violet Richards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, yeah, she would have to be a sister and she would have to be the youngest. I'm the youngest in my family. <laughs> okay. well, it's interesting. You, you say, know, yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know. And so, yeah, that youngest is always like the feisty one, the go-getter, the one that says, I'll do this my way. Yes. And, um, and so I needed, you know, another sister that would act as a foil. And then I needed a third sister because the third sister kind of has a point of view as well. And she kind of explains what it's like to be a teenage girl living under this oppression and, you know, these horrific conditions. And so that's kind of how I came up with the sister relationship. I did actually tap into kind of my own um, sibling relationship because Mm -hmm. there is all this, you know, sort of, oh, you're a mom's favorite. Oh, you're dad's favorite. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And I think all families have that. I am a mom. I can tell you, honestly, I don't have a favorite child, Um, but somehow kids always seem to get that. Right, Um, right. Yeah. I'm a mom too. I do think though we treat, at least I do, I can confess to treating, and I have a boy and a girl. So, you know, I don't know Mm -hmm. if you have some some of each or two boys and a girl. Yeah. And I do find that, that my I treat them differently. It's not really fair. My expectations for my daughter are much higher. You know, it's a funny, like kind of, and that's a, that's sort of a reverse sexism, right? That I'm like, oh, I, I guess I just don't assume my son is, you know, that's terrible. But I, so we do do these things and my daughter will be like, you're so much nicer to, you know, to Jack. And I'm, it's a funny thing. I'm like, it's not what I'm meaning, meaning to do, but I, it's, it's about who's or older sometimes, you know, about who you feel like can get something done. So yeah, I do totally understand that. And it's fun to hear that Violet emerged first. I was, that was one of my questions is which of these sisters emerged first? Because Marigold's story is quite interesting, right? She wants to go to law school and she's mm-hmm. actually working um, in a down, you know, for an organization. And I don't know if that was a real, you know, that I'm sure there were organizations like that. Tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, real organization, um, the Mississippi Summer Project. Yeah. And so it was organized by civil rights group like um, the NAACP, the right. SCLC, uh, CORE, SNCC, all these organizations came together um, to send testers into the South um, for a couple reasons. One, to try and um, get Black Mississippians um, to sign up to vote because- right. Of course, um, you know, the powers to be um, had intimidated Blacks right, right. through any number of things that we kind of get into in the book. And so a lot of Blacks were intimidated from signing up to vote. But then um, the Mississippi Summer Project was also designed to help because there was um, the Civil Rights Act, which was passed in 1964, which said, you know, you have to open up access. Right, right, right. Um, But there was a small wedge of time where white business owners refused to open their doors and allow Blacks to come in through the front door or, you know, to sit beside 
acceptance in these um, places uh, of public access. access. So um, the uh, Mississippi Summer Project also helped by sending in testers who would go in and try and register in hotels. Uh, and see how it was going. Exactly. Um, and so I kind of explored that and what that feels like too, when you know that the law grants you a right, but people still want to abide by the law. Right. And the law, the people who are enforcing that law are, you know, are definitely, I mean, these are the people who are supposed to enforce that law are, you know, not going to enforce it. Right. I mean, that's, there's the, the, the share. I mean, we have a lot of characters in this book. We have really wonderful characters who are, you know, black and white who support the, you know, the, these women and, and this, and the, the, the new law and all that. And then we have people who say, well, no, that's not how we're going to do things here. Yeah. Uh, and of course that feels completely authentic. It feels, you know, it feels completely authentic um, today. And we're going to, we're going to get to that, but that was, I love that part of her, that part of her experience, because, you know, I felt like that was something that, you know, we hear about things like that, 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 that are still going on in terms of like, you know, things like the innocence project where people are going down and, and working, you know, yeah. with, with people who in, you know, who are, you know, illegally incarcerated or wrongly accused and all that. But it was interesting to see, of course, that's been around. And, and I would be, I loved reading about their, the experience. And it was, from Marigold's perspective, of course, it has its own little um, twist to that. And we can't, we're not going to tell you about that. You have to read the book because it's fabulous. But um, <laughs> but that would made it all the more interesting, right? It wasn't, it, the experience was very um, mixed for her. So, um, and one of the things I love that you do in this book as well, and I think it's, it's such a wonderful, um, it's such a truth, is the idea of sort of secrets, right? And I, and it sounds like, um, I had, although, and I haven't read it, but her little secrets obviously also centers around, you know, secrets and this sort of reemergence of the past and that we bury something that never really stays buried. So I'm curious, is that, you know, is that a sort of a theme that interests you and, and why? And, you know, because yeah. it's, oh man, I love a good secret. <laughs> like, I love, love, love. And it's so funny. I probably shouldn't tell this story. My, my husband's going to kill me. Um, when he hears this this podcast, but uh, we went to brunch just yesterday with um, you know my in laws, and like a family secret kind of rolled off somebody's tongue, and we all kind of you know right. with the head at the same time, and I was like, ooh, and my husband was like, shh, and I was like, ooh, how nice. But I love, love, love a good family secret. And I think to me, because all families are kind of real and raw and dysfunctional and messed up and yeah. good and loving and all those other things that, you know, as a family unit, we try and keep the surface level of what the family is, right. you know. We are good people, we are kind, we support mm. each other. And then I think in all families, there's kind of this undercurrent of things that we don't talk about in a family. And, you know, I mean, the secrets could be, you know, as small as, you know, Uncle Joe spent three nights in jail for, right. you know, 
getting drunk and cursing out the mayor in the town square, but you know, they can also be something much deeper and, and things that impact the generations that come. And so that's what this secret is about um, because it is a secret that kind of unravels the entire family. Right. Um, and right. it is an outgrowth of kind of this larger um, oppressive environment that everybody lives under and um so it is kind of that secret <clears throat> excuse me and each one of the point of view characters each has a secret of their own as yeah. well and if that secret is revealed things could turn very ugly and so it is those secrets that kind of drive the narrative of the story because right secret is revealed or what is that other family secret and so I like secrets because they help to drive the, the tension and the narrative of the story. They, they do and I think it's one of the things that's so interesting about secrets is that sometimes we keep secrets that we would actually be so much better served to share particularly exactly. with like somebody close like a sister. Um, exactly. exactly. And yet, we and carry yet we some stuff we don't share it we don't we're not and actually I think that's a, that's the thing about and I think women, um, this is actually true. Let me think about that. I feel like, you know, we, we, I do feel like we're harder on ourselves. And mm -hmm. I do feel like sometimes like things that would actually, our sisters would really understand. Um, we hide because we think it's something sort of that's shameful. And, there, and some of these things are, I mean, if it depends on who's judging us, right? They, they could be considered shameful, but I think the person that would be most apt to understand and embrace and help is the person that we sort of least want to tell. Exactly, because I think there's also that element that, not that you'd be judged, but that I don't want my sister to think less of me. Right. Um, and I think that that's what these sisters are kind of, you know, knee deep in that, totally. you know, one sister thinks, oh, she'll judge me. And the other sister thinks, oh, I can't deal with her right now because she won't understand. Right. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because you're right, if they were to tell, and then they ultimately do come to a point where they all kind of confess their secrets. Um, but the thread that keeps them together despite these secrets that they hold, they withhold from each other is that deep and abiding love that they have right. for each other. Family. And, and, you know, and on top of that, I think, you know, one of the things that this book also um, features so, so incredibly well is loss and the sort of, and in this case, and in that generation in, in Mississippi, the compounded loss, you know, we get, I'm sorry, I'm losing my little earbud. Um, I mean, we are talking about loss on top of loss. And so many times I read these, these women and in, in sort of the, one more thing. And I thought, God, the strength of these women. I mean, the strength of the people that survived that time who are still surviving that stuff. I mean, it is, and you do such a one, these aren't women who sort of beat their chests and say, look how strong I am. These are women who, they just move through it. And yeah, I love that. Every day and put one foot in front of the other yeah. to keep moving forward. And um, I think it's a, a testament to a lot of women, I think a, a common thread through both my books is this element of strength in women without 
like you say, beating their chest and saying, I'm a strong woman, but just doing those everyday things it takes to yeah. survive and to get to the next day and to get to the next, right. you know, month or what have you. And I, I tried to deal with several different types of women in this book too, yeah. you know, yeah. you have, you know, the one sister Marigold, who is kind of the stereotypical good girl of the right. 1960s, which right. I kind of turned that on its head. And then you have um, Violet, who is very sassy, but she has this very deep need to figure out what is it that I really am, who I am, and what is it that I want. And then you have other women like um, you know, Lily, who yeah. um, demonstrates um, the church's problem with gay and lesbian people. Right. And you have Betty Jean Kugler, who yes. can't have financial independence. Right. Um, and Lurleen up in Lurleen. Exactly. She's and, fabulous. Yeah. And Lurleen, who, you know, is still kind of doing the things she loves, but she's also constricted by where they live there in the right. 1960s. Right, right. And even though there's this sense that, you know, Marigold has that once I move to the North, it'll be better because it won't live under, you know, segregation and Jim Crow, um, Jim Crow rules. She gets to the north and discovers, hmm. Yeah, she's yeah, another problem, not, right? Yeah, right. another problem up here as well. Right, right. I think it's almost like what made me think of is I feel like we. It's almost like now, and 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 only certain pockets of of the of now even we are we have the privilege to be like we're gonna be strong women, right? We mm -hmm. can say, well, that's you know, listen, I. I but we we are, we've got everything working for us, right? I mean, we live in the right place. We have education. We have resources. You know, these are women who had no education, no rights, no resources, and it wasn't a matter of choosing to be a, a strong woman. It was they. It was like that was all there was. You have you either curl up and die, you know, or let somebody you know beat you to death, um, or you know, or whatever they're gonna horrible thing, or you you do what these women did and you just muscle through. And that's one of the reasons why um, each of the girls, um, the sisters are named after a flower because mm -hmm. their mother lives with, you know, all this horror in her everyday life. And so right. when she brings a child into the world, she says, I'm bringing something beautiful into the world. Yeah. Each of them is named after a flower. And it's just a small nod to exactly what you're saying that, you know, I'm strong, but I'm limited. And so yeah. here's what I can do. Um, I could at least bring something beautiful into the world. And it's, it's a sign of hope. I mean, I think that's, there's so much faith. And I, and I know for, you know, there's the, that religion and God that helps um, some people, not everybody, but I think that's part of it. But it's like, how do you have, how do you find the faith to think this will, you know, this will work out? I mean, how do these yeah. women, you know, just I, I'm amazed and in awe of sort of the power that they find within themselves to keep going and into the very end of the story. I mean, to yeah. the very last page, it's like 
I mean, there's, you know, you did not tie us up into like, this is not like the end of the book. And we're like, these women are free. Everything's great. It's like, it's just, I mean, not that, that it's not realistic. Of course, it's not realistic, but it's a powerful ending too, because I, because I think of the way, you know, of where you left us. And I, again, we can't talk about it because I want people to read the book and, and feel what I felt, which is like, cause that's the kind of book that stays with you. You think, oh my God, right? So now let's talk about Wanda, the fact that that was 1964 and this is 2022, which is literally two years short of 60 years. I have lots of bad language that I wanna talk about when I think about how much time has passed. And really it's, there are now, especially now, especially after Roe v. Wade, holy shit. Exactly, I have a millennial daughter and I, I was telling her recently, I was like, you now have less rights than I had when I was your age. And that's sad. That's sad. When you yeah. think about it was like what 50 years ago that the Roe v. Wade decision came down, it was less than 60 years that the Voting Rights Act was signed into law. Yeah. The things that I talk about in this book seem eerily familiar yeah. to what's going on now. And I think you know, what progress have we made and how it's slowly being ebbed away. Right. Um, and, and, you know, just to go back to what you said about the ending of the book, I wanted to leave people with this hope because there are a lot of dark moments in this book. I get it. My books tend to be that way. I yeah. apologize to readers. Don't, don't. Way, but, yeah, well, there, I mean, it's not for... But, I don't, I mean, that's important depth. I don't want you to apologize yeah. for the darkness because I think that's what makes this feel so authentic. And it's not without, it's light. There's lots of funny moments. There's lots of beautiful yeah. moments. I so don't apologize. to leave readers with these moments of hope at the yes. end of the book. You that, do. Yeah, there will be something better. And particularly so with this book because yeah. so much feels so familiar to yeah where we are today. And I, you know, I have to keep believing that it's gonna turn around, that the mistake that has been made with the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision is going to get righted. I have to believe because if you don't, you could fall into a very, very dark place. The thing yeah. of all the people that fought so very hard for this, yeah, go back and watch their you know granddaughters and their granddaughters um right you know and it so. is a hard thing to have a conversation I also my daughter's uh 22 and it's a really hard thing to explain to her I mean because I want her to look at her country I mean now she's old enough to be realistic about the, the very real shortcomings of being an American woman which are mm -hmm. more real now than they've ever been before um yes. for her at least and you know, it's like, she's like, you know, the thing she said to me that breaks my heart is that I actually have less rights than a gun. Right, exactly. My daughter, my daughter's in her 20s too. And we have that same conversation or the ease in which somebody, like you say, could go in and buy a gun. And, you know, I think to myself, wait a minute, somebody who can't legally buy an alcoholic beverage can go and buy an AK-50. What world are we living in? That's right. What world what are we living in? Living in. 
Um, and so, yeah, I try and tackle things like that in my book, but I hope that readers understand that I'm trying to, you know, one point of the parallels, but I'm also trying to remain hopeful because at the end of this book, the two women ultimately are, find some place. They do, they actually, and that is exactly right. Those, these women are in, um, they're in a, a different place at the end of this book and they have found, they have gone through a, you know, their hard journey, but it, it, we leave them with a, we leave them with a lot of, you know, for, well, I would, and again, I don't want to talk about, I never like to talk about the ending, but absolutely. They're in a much better place than they were, but along the yeah. way, they've also accumulated additional losses, which is, so yeah. that's the thing that's, you know, it's like they've learned, you know, they've gotten something, but it's like the, the thing that's so hard is that like with these characters is the cost of getting to where they get to. And I think that's that's true of the 19s, that's true of this era, is that for anybody, for women in particular to get anywhere and black women or black people to get anywhere is, you know, the costs are really steep. Yeah. And that is a brutal reality. I mean, it's a very, brutal reality. Very well put, that's so true. The, the cost is very, very steep. It's very steep. So um, tell us, Wanda, you know, you have, a, are you still a full-time corporate attorney? You're a busy so, lady. <laughs> so what happened was, um, I took a sabbatical from the practice of law just before um, any uh, all her little secrets came out. And I was yeah. like, okay, so I'll go back to it in the spring. The book came out last November. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go back in, in the spring. And then this book um, started to catch some wind under its sail. And I found that I was having to do a lot. And so I was kind of like, you know, I don't think I can go back. So we'll see what happens. I still yeah. keep my bar license. At yes, right. <laughs> You don't want to have to take that test again, right? No, I mean, that is that yeah. again. So I still yeah, keep my bar. Exactly. Um, so tell us, are you, yeah, are you, um, are you somebody who outlines? Are you a pants? How do you, what's your process? So I am a messy mix of both. <laughs> um, you know, my writing process is so freaking messy that, you know, I almost hate to describe it, but what I do is I start out with a very loose outline and I'm not talking like 250 page Jeffrey Deaver outlines. I'm talking like, you know, like three or four pages where right. I kind of jotted down where the major plot points are. Okay. And then I go to a yellow notepad with um, blue G2 gel pilot in blue ink pens. And I always start off in um, longhand and right. I, I go in straight to the computer and it's just a blank page. I can't do anything straight at the computer so I write what I consider like probably about a half of the book okay. um, in hand and then I put all that in the computer but as I'm putting it in the computer I start editing at yeah that. changes right right so do you have would you feel like the plot points that you've outlined are pretty much what the plot points end up being or do they sort of um, change they what happens is they are usually there in some form or fashion, but they move around mm -hmm. as I tell the story because I like to keep the plot kind of twisting. Mm -hmm. And 
kind of bobbing and weaving. And so I may move the tip poles around, so to speak. Yeah, got it. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned writing by longhand. I think there is something uh, physiological about the writing long. I can't do, I could, I couldn't possibly do it, but I have heard that people feel of that. And I also think there's something about being an attorney, right? All your years. Exactly. So talk exactly. about that. Yeah, I, you, that's the thing about it. Um, <laughs> that's when I started to feel really old um, because I would go to meetings and like the lawyers who were in the meetings who had just graduated, you know, a couple years out of law school would just have their computers and they'd be there typing up notes. And then those of us who were dinosaurs would be sitting there with the yellow pads and the pins. I'm with um, you on the dinosaur part, so hold on. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something about that because I'm accustomed to going to meetings and taking notes in right. longhand. And so when I started to write my first book, I tried going to the computer and I was like, maybe I just can't write a book. And then I was actually stuck in an airport true story. I was stuck in an airport. I had a notepad and pen with me. Um, I did not have my computer. I did not have my computer because my computer was at home. And I'm trying to think, I think I was either at the airport waiting for someone or doing something. Anyway, I pulled out the notepad and that's where I wrote the very first scene. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, this is great. And then I got back home and I tried to go back to the computer and I couldn't do it. But when I went to the notepad and I was like, oh, I am a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that you talk about these, you know, I, the kid, these, I call I almost called them kids. These kids sitting with their computers open. <laughs> that's, when, that's when you know I'm super old, right? But I do feel like there's something interesting about being in a meeting and watching people on their computer because it feels like you put a barrier between you yeah. and the rest of the room. Particularly so when I'm interviewing witnesses. If I'm talking to a witness, I just feel it would be rude to hold a computer up between us. Right. Um, and so I would always, particularly when I was talking to witnesses, I always, always used a notepad and yeah. pad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I found the process works for me. And yeah. so I tell, you know, emerging writers, whatever works for you, that's what you do. Because I hate people that give these rules that say, you know, you always have to do this or you always have to do that. And I'm like, every writer's journey is different. And so I try not to tell people you always have to do this. I think the only thing you always have to do is just keep writing. Put words on the page, put words somewhere. Get put the words, words out. Somewhere. Yeah, That's I, I mean, I, I always think, oh, I, I mean, I've been doing, I mean, I've been doing this forever and I keep thinking, I'm gonna get better. I'm gonna get smarter about how I do this. I'm gonna be more efficient. Oh. Turns out like my, I have to like write, I have to throw away 40,000 words every time I write a book. It's just the way it works. It's for me. the way it works. I'm telling you, if you can find a way to do it more efficiently, bottle it up. I'm buying some. Totally. <laughs> me too. I want I'm, the elixir. Exactly. Yeah. I want the elixir because I just can't figure out that process. But with this book, it was a lot of fun because um, I had to do a lot of research. Yeah, um, talk about that. How did you, 
You taught, you mentioned at the back of, in your acknowledgements, people that you spoke to. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what sort of who you got to talk to and, and the process of research. Oh yeah, that, you know, I always have to give a shout out to the Auburn Avenue Research Library on African-American history and culture here in Atlanta. Wow. Those librarians were just, I, they were superheroes. I, I walked in there. I kind of, you know, already fleshed through what I wanted to write about. And I walked in and said, you know, hey, I need, you know, information on this particular point in history. And they just kind of opened up these floodgates. And so I spent hours in there culling through papers and books, um, magazines, um, all sorts of things from the early 1960s. I um, I talked to uh, relatives who lived during yeah. that the time. And the highlight for me is I got to talk to Jonathan Shapiro. I read that. I know. Yeah, he actually worked on the Mississippi Summer Project in Jackson, Mississippi. And I give another shout out to Hank Philippi Ryan because Jonathan is her husband. And oh, I made, did not know that. That's yes, amazing. Yes. And she made that connection and introduction for me. And I am in her debt. Hank's amazing. She's fabulous. She's, yeah. She also doesn't sleep. I've decided she, she, she does so much. I'm like, she does. sleep woman. Um, yeah. yeah, she introduced me to her husband and I could have talked to this man for hours, but I, I really do think having that conversation with him, um, along with all this, you know, research helped me lend authenticity to the book because I didn't, I didn't want to just talk about these things. I wanted to immerse them into the characters' stories. And then right. there was some fun stuff that I did. You know, in addition to reading all the magazines, I listened to a lot of old music. I know. Um, I love the old, like Sam Cooke. I love all that. Oh Coltrane and Miles Davis. And that was fun. And, and since Lurleen is a, you know, the character is a um, lounge singer, that was super fun. So there's... A, you know, I love feeling like I'm learning something, you know, when I read, not the kind where you're like, not a textbook, not where I'm like, but being like, after a book is done, being like, oh, you know what, I actually learned, I was so caught up in the story that I didn't realize it. And that's the best type of learning for me. Cause I'm like, don't tell me I'm learning. But at the end, I'm like, oh, I learned some things. And I, I love that. And I, I did feel like it felt, you know, the authenticity and of the, also of the, you know, the, like you said, the story, the, the three men that were, that had come down um, to the South who were killed. Um, and that, that whole sort of side, that's a whole different story and within the story. Um, and that was, you know, felt sort of the investigation of that was also really interesting. So you do a wonderful job of weaving it in, in a way that feels like we're reading a story that, that you're writing about something that happened, you know, yesterday, even though of course it's not. Um, so kudos to you. That's so fabulous. So I, I wanted to ask you, you know, I, you know, besides what we really want, of course, since we're thriller authors is to tell a really good story and have readers, you know, read, you know, not be able to put it down and, mm -hmm. and then think about it after, um, you know, after the story is done, which you have done 100% here. So is there, you know, is there anything else that you would like, if you could talk to a reader and say, Hey, I want you to this is what I'm hoping this story does for you. Mm. Kind of a you hard know what? question. I, I hope that 
you know, readers will read the story and, and like you say, get a sense of what it was like to exist in that time period. Yeah. And then look at where we are and specifically where they are in this current time period and ask themselves, how can I be part of the solution? Because a lot of what um, happens in this book currently happens today. Right. And, you know, if you don't want to be part of the the problem, then be part of the solution. Right. Um, and and particularly for women, because sometimes I think we act against our own interest. Ah, isn't that true? Yeah, what is know, up with us? That, but like, look at where we are as women today and ask, did I contribute to this? And how can I help not do this in the future if I did? Um, yeah. You know, I and I I hate that, but I think we do. I think because a lot of times, a lot of women, even grown women, even older women, haven't really found their voice, and so they are busy listening to the noise and the rancor and the voices of everybody else who tells them what they should be and who they should be and how they should vote mm-hmm. and how they should go about right. living lives. And until we are actually honest with our individual selves and say, is this what I want for myself? Is this what I want for my daughters or my granddaughter? Yeah. Right. Then I think that women will still continue to work against their own interests. And that yeah. does nobody a service. That's right. And I actually think to take it one step further, because you're so kind, um, is that I feel like it's not even a matter of like, you know, it's not even a matter of, I want to be part of the solution. It's like, if you're not part of the solution, you're kind of part of the problem, right? Exactly. I think yeah. we have to all step up. And the other thing women do, I feel like, is we're really awful to one another. We really yeah. sort of, we say to each other, you know, it's like, I, so if I was a working mom, like, and then, and for some reason that makes the stay at home moms, I know my enemies because they're doing it, not the way I'm doing it. Yeah. There's so much, and I think some of that is put on us. You know, we're, mm. we're, I think there's a, there's something about, there's that, that saying like women would run the world. If only we could get along, women would run the world. Exactly. And, and I think some of that is by design, right? Nobody some people don't want us to get along. But I also think it's like, I think we have to accept the fact that like writers, no two women are doing their life the same way. We can't, mm-hmm. our situations are different. Our everything's, it's just different. But it's like, I think we can all agree that we're doing kind of the best we can, you know? And, and so like, why don't we just cut each other a little slack and say, well, if, you know, I'm doing the best I can. She's doing the best she can. Is there a way for me to help her? It doesn't really, mm-hmm cost me anything except for being like hey girlfriend you got this you're like like you're having a rough day and I see women on the plane like two babies and cars and I say can I help because I have been there right it's just there oh yeah exactly exactly and that's so true what you say about you know moms who work outside the home and moms who work inside the home and I go to my kids school and it is almost like they're little cliques yeah and it's unfortunate because I find the moms that I do tend to gravitate to are the moms where we have to go to the evening meetings because we can't make the 10 o'clock meetings in the morning because busy you know working outside the home yeah Um, 
And so you're absolutely right that if we were ever much nicer to one another, we'd be so much further ahead. And that, you know, not specifically around women, but there's also divide and conquer theme that's within the book as well, because there's also a character within the book, um, the character who chases the two women. And he too is a product of this racist, yeah system right right will have created and you know he kind of asked himself in the book I'm you know I'm a white guy why don't I drive a fancy car right he's one of the disenfranchised he's one of the poor and one of the things that you know racists did in the south was to divide the poor um and so they felt like if I can make a poor white man feel better than a poor black man, then all the better for me and for me to stay in power. Right. What that man doesn't realize is he's in the same situation and he's being used as a pawn. And so that's also one of the themes in the book is that it's not just race, but it's also a matter of class. Oh, absolutely. The economic, the economic, uh, diversity too. And actually, I want to talk just a moment about that character because again, without giving anything away, one of the things I like a lot about this book is that there are a lot of shades of gray in the bad guys and in the good guys. I mean, and and so I, I feel like that's another thing that's really authentic about the story is that there's a lot, I have a lot of compassion for the gentleman you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. He's in a really tough spot financially, he's got complications. And it's like, I understand the decision he made, which, you know, was a, is a bad one. I understand how he felt like he had to make it. And and I think that is a sign of a really wonderful story because it gives us, we have to be compassionate for that guy's situation too, even if he's going to make a bad decision. Yeah, exactly. It's so funny. My husband read the book and one of the first things he said to me was, you know what? I have some mixed feelings about that guy. And right. he's like, I didn't think I would feel that way. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. I'm glad. That's good. <laughs> right. That's good. And that is, I think, a reason to read. A reason to read, you know, is, and, you know, I think that is, that's a reason to read is to understand, because it's all about the situation we're stuck in and what we, you know, what we do, we do what we have to do. I said it with the very first book, I said it with all her little secrets, and it's the same with Anywhere You Run, is that each of us, none of us is all good, and none of us is all bad. No, no. And there are shades and gradations of who we are and what we are, and then we make decisions based on that. And so right. made a decision based on the circumstances he was living in, yeah. just as Marigold and Violet made decisions based on the circumstances in which they found themselves in. Right. And all of their decisions kind of collide. Right, um, right. Which is what makes a great story. That's what makes a great story. And I, and you have, you have a hunt, like absolutely nailed it. I love this. I can't wait to get my hands and start reading um, all her little secrets because I think um, it's just, just, you've opened up such a wonderful world and your characters. I think for me, I love a good plot and, 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 Anywhere you run has a great plot, um, but I really love it when the plot and the character work together to sort of make everything just like so tense and so you know exciting, and you're just nervous the whole time. It's almost like you feel like you can't eat because you're like, I gotta, I gotta just get to the end of this. I, 
I'm gonna throw up uh, in, in a good way. I throw up in a good way. I'm not sure if that's a thing, but you know, that, that's, that's how funny. There is a scene in there that I wrote that I kind of scared myself. I was writing the scene at the time and I kept hearing a noise outside. Oh my God. The room. And I, I work in a little study off the, the living room and I kept hearing this noise. And I got up and I checked and there was nothing. And I come back and I start writing again and I heard the noise again. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to put this scene away. Yeah. <laughs> I can if it scares me, it might scare somebody else. Well, it yeah. I mean, there's a there's a few moments in the story where I'm like, oh my God, what is happening? So and I read at night because you know I work I work on my books during the day and do this kind of fun stuff. And then so I literally like my I read from, you know, I get in bed at like 8 30 or 9 and read until I, you know, usually until the book is done or until like I pass out. But um, so then I'm, you know, oftentimes as my husband's traveling to work, I'm like by myself, like, oh my gosh. And I have like a five, 10 pound puppy is my like defense mechanism. And I'm like, oh God. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's why I love thrillers, right? There's no bigger stakes than life and death. And that's, that's what you're writing about. So it's so fabulous. So what is next, Wanda? What are you working on? Can you tell us anything about it? We're so excited. Oh, thank you. So I'm working on the third book, um, Please Send Prayers Up. Um, <laughs> it is a, it takes place um, in the present day. So it's a contemporary novel again. Um, and it is about a, a young woman who has to rise above her own insecurities. She has a lot going on and it makes her very insecure and she has to rise above that when she discovers um, an illegal scheme that um, takes away the land and the generational wealth of black people in low country, Georgia. Oh God, I love it. Oh my God. Do we know probably this time next year-ish? Is that about? No, no, we don't have a date for okay. it yet. So we'll, we'll let you write it before we start to demand it. But um, but it is so, that, that sounds phenomenal. I love that. I love that idea. And I can't wait to, to read that one too. Um, so Wanda, tell us, tell listeners where to find you, um, social media, your website, all that good stuff. Absolutely. My website is wandamorriswrites.com. And you can find me on Twitter as wandamo14. I'm on Instagram as wandamorrites. And I'm on Facebook as Wanda Morris Writer. So please, I love hearing from readers. Please reach out if you have a comment. If you like the book, I always hear from people who don't like my books. <laughs> Okay, Why is that? Um, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm I like, really? Is I this, always say is like, <laughs> if you like my book, write me. If you don't like my book, write me and send it to the wrong address. It'd be great. Exactly. Right? Like, the things that I get, I'm kind of like, oh, you might need a hobby. <laughs> yes. I know. It's all that, and not, it's all that anonymity behind the internet that gets to say something yep. that, they would never say in polite company. They would never say that to our faces. They would I would like to think they wouldn't. Oh, yeah. I've gotten so many of those. Ah, those people. It's like Brene Brown says, if you're not up here on the stage with me, I don't care what you think. I love and that she says that. I usually think, I'm like, I wonder how many books they've written. Okay, none. Okay, yeah. so yeah. move along. Yeah, move along. And not everyone's going to love everything we do. That's It's not the point. But I do think you're right. If you love Wanda's book, which I think you probably will, 
send her a note and tell her how much you love it. So that's fantastic. Wanda, it has been such a pleasure. I could talk to you all day to talk to you today. And um, we wish you the best of luck. And thank you so much for joining me. Everybody, anywhere you run on October 25th. Yes. Is that right? October 25th, you're going to want to pick it up ASAP and pre-order it. It'll be available. So thank you so much for joining me today, Wanda. This has been Killer Women podcast with Wanda Morris, and we will see you next time. Bye.